welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series two and episode two. This is the baptism of Jesus. And in a minute, we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. But before we actually read this short passage which describes Jesus's baptism, let's just remind ourselves of what's happened immediately before. In the last episode, series 2, episode 1, I described John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, as he came to the Jordan, started preaching in Israel, challenging different social groups, challenging the wealthy, challenging tax collectors, challenging soldiers and and also the religious establishments. uh, It's time for change, time to await the Messiah coming, time to get their lives in order and time to demonstrate that by being baptised by immersion in the River Jordan. That's really what he did in his ministry as described in um, the last episode. And John had a significant following. I mean, thousands of people came. So he became well known across the country in a very short period of time. And he raised expectation that something dramatic was going to happen in the nation of Israel, bearing in mind that nothing much spiritually dramatic had happened for really quite a long time. I mentioned last time how no recognised prophet had, had emerged for 400 years and how the religion appeared to many to be rather stale, rather legalistic, Um, and a little bit futile because the nation was oppressed under the control of the Romans and their leaders and those they appointed to lead different parts of the country. It was an uncomfortable situation. The economy wasn't so good because of taxation and uh, the demands of the Roman Empire. It wasn't a good situation. And so there was a great desire for change. Many people thought the best thing would be to take up arms against the Romans. Some people wanted to retreat and live a kind of monastic life and and separate themselves from society, small minorities. But most people were just really dissatisfied and looking for some greater spiritual reality. And in the back of their minds was the awareness that the Old Testament had prophesied in many ways that a future ruler, messiah, saviour, servant of God, son of man, was going to come and uh, bring in a new dispensation, a new reality, a new covenant a new relationship with God, and hopefully a new political situation in the country as well. So all these things were in the background as John came, and we described that last time. And so what I want to do as we start this session now is to just go back to the final things that John said, according to Luke's account, as he very, very specifically predicted what was going to happen next. Bearing in mind At this particular point, Jesus was largely unknown, an ordinary man, single man, living at home with his family in a rather remote village in Galilee called Nazareth, uh, where nothing much really happens, and he was just living a quiet life. He would be around the age of 30 or perhaps a little less at this time. So that's Jesus. That's his situation. No influence, no miracles. No big stories apart from the memory in some people's minds of the miraculous birth. And a very few people might remember the visit he made to the Jerusalem temple age 12. But really, Jesus was an unknown figure in the nation. 
And from that point, John, with crowds gathered around him, on the side of the River Jordan, while he's baptising people, makes this prophetic statement, anticipating what's going to happen. And this is our introduction to our passage, and we'll get to our passage in a moment. But Luke 3, verse 16, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John clearly is identifying himself as a forerunner. He's making the way for somebody else, somebody who's really very different from him. I'm not even worthy to be his servant and untie his shoes, which is what a servant would do in those days. Such is the difference that John sees between himself and this forthcoming Messiah. I baptise with water, he'll baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. We discussed this at the end of the last episode, so I'm repeating it because it links very closely to what happens next. So John is consciously awakening an awareness in people that the story's not about him. It's about somebody who's coming afterwards. And John, of course, knew who that was. Jesus, his relative, who was born miraculously by virgin birth to his relative Mary uh, shortly after he was born. So this is the context in which the Gospels tell us about Jesus. Jesus wasn't present when John started his ministry. He wasn't with him. He wasn't there. Things were moving. Thousands of people were coming. Crowds came down from Jerusalem and the surrounding area on a regular basis to see John, to listen to him, to talk to him. And some of them felt very moved by him. They didn't quite know why, but they felt a change was needed in their lives. And so they submitted to baptism by immersion in the River Jordan. But Jesus wasn't there at that time. But it wasn't long afterwards that he did appear. And here is the passage we're going to look at today about the baptism of Jesus. We're going to take Matthew's account on this occasion, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. 
a short but very dramatic account. And at the beginning, it appears that Jesus consciously decided to travel down to the River Jordan, probably quite a long way from his home because the baptismal site was probably uh, much further south towards the area of Judea and Jerusalem at a place which John's gospel described as Bethany beyond the Jordan. So Jesus took this journey and he knew why he was taking it. He was going to undergo this baptism as well. Now, John knew that his job was to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't really understand that Jesus wanted to be baptised as well. And John's hesitation is obvious, and you can understand it, can't you? Because baptism is a symbol of cleansing. And what, is, what do we need to be cleansed from? The things we've done wrong, sins, rebellion against God, all sorts of things that we know are wrong. And that's what the other people had in mind when they underwent baptism uh, from John. But when Jesus came, John knew that this was not true of Jesus. He knew he was the son of God. He knew that he was without sin. He'd lived a perfect life and would continue to do so. So therefore he hesitated, tried to put Jesus off and almost wanted to reverse the roles and say, well, actually, Jesus, why don't you baptize me? I've been baptizing these people, but the most appropriate thing is you baptize me. Because I'm also a sinner, even though I'm a prophet. But Jesus declined and said, let it be so now. And he gives a, a reason. He said, it, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? That's a difficult phrase to interpret. Probably what it means is to obey what God the Father wants for Jesus to do. And Jesus wanted to follow through in that obedience and God's, the Father's blessing on Jesus is evident by the words that he speaks. We'll come to those in just a moment. So he needed to fulfill all righteousness. And so can I suggest just a few things that make sense of Jesus's baptism? His baptism would be immediately a, a publicly known event and widely discussed. So it created a moment where he appeared on the public stage. This is the moment when Jesus begins his ministry, in effect. He's not been a public figure until now, and he deliberately approaches John and chooses this moment and chooses this methodology that he himself will be baptised. It's an announcement. Perhaps it symbolises his future death and resurrection because, uh, as Paul says in the book of Romans, baptism symbolises death and resurrection in a, in a lovely way. Perhaps even more importantly, this is to identify with sinful people, ordinary people, people like me and you, John the Baptist, everyone who listens to this message, everyone who listened to John the Baptist. We need to be baptised. We need to repent. We need to have faith in Jesus. And we'll talk a bit more about that in just a moment. But Jesus is identifying 
with us. He's, in a sense, sharing in our sinfulness, not by his own actions being sinful at all, but he's identifying himself as a fellow human who wants to bring the remedy or the uh, solution for the burden of sin and guilt and estrangement and separation from God that we feel because we're not right with him, naturally speaking. And Paul describes this, um, this aspect of Jesus' life in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is a symbol of the beginning of that process, which he fulfills by dying on the cross, as we'll discuss uh, later on in the Life of Jesus series. The wonderful thing about this baptism, though, is what happens immediately after Jesus comes out of the water. And Jesus, I would imagine, would understand this was going to happen and see how significant this was going to be for the onlookers and anyone who reads this story subsequently like you and I are doing and studying it today. We've got a wonderful connection here between Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and God the Father. Now, we know from all Christian teaching that God is three persons, one God in three persons. And here we have a very vivid, visual, and audible demonstration of that reality. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person. We'll talk much more about the Holy Spirit in other episodes. He is a person. And John has predicted that Jesus will bring the person of the Holy Spirit in power into the life of people who follow him. We'll see how that happens in due course. But here we find Jesus equipped by the Spirit. The Spirit comes down and reveals himself in a bodily form as a dove, as a bird coming down. This is for the benefit of onlookers to understand that something miraculous is happening here. And we see in the rest of the Gospels that Jesus is, from this moment onwards, equipped in a fresh way with the power of the Spirit to equip him to fulfill everything that he needs to do in his public ministry. He didn't need the power of the Spirit in that same way in the growing up years and his early adulthood in Nazareth when he was living an ordinary life. But now he needs that power of the Spirit. And so this is the symbolic and actual moment at which that power becomes real. And it's described frequently from this moment onwards that Jesus came full of the Spirit in the power of the Spirit and his miraculous life from this point onwards is attributed to the incredible presence of the Holy Spirit within him. So the Spirit comes in a bodily form like a dove and the onlookers can begin to see something remarkable happening. But even more dramatic than that is an audible voice coming from some unknown place, which Matthew describes here as the voice of God the Father. 
speaking uh, of his son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now for John the Baptist and for everyone who looked on, what happened at this moment was astonishingly significant. John would know without any shadow of doubt that this was the moment that Jesus' ministry was going to uh, begin. The voice of God the Father speaks. Now this is of course a miraculous account, a miraculous event. Uh, there's, there's miracles all the way through the Gospels and we don't understand exactly how this happened, but we do understand that Jesus, John and the onlookers could hear a voice which affirmed uh, Jesus and it was uh, the voice of God the Father. And there are three times in the Gospels that the voice of God the Father is described. This is the first. The second one is halfway through Jesus' public ministry where he goes up a high mountain and he uh, takes three of his disciples with him and uh, up this high mountain he experiences uh, the glory of God coming upon him. It's called the Transfiguration. A number of other events happen. Moses and Elijah appear and the voice of God the Father comes. So that's the second occasion. Then a third one recounted in John's Gospel is in the last week of Jesus's life, which helps prepare some onlookers for Jesus's death. So God the Father's voice is three times heard by onlookers in the life of Jesus. This is the first time. Now, of course, the voice of the Father would also have a significant impact on the Son, on Jesus himself. Uh, he knew his Father intimately, their relationship was one of very close fellowship and communication, um, but to hear that public voice would have had a wonderful effect upon him. So what reflections can we draw? What significance can we see from this uh, remarkable and brief account of uh, Jesus's baptism? First thing I want to emphasize is that the Trinity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, are clearly described here in a way that I've explained. But the interaction of these three persons is as part of a mission. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, are together involved in the mission to humanity to bring Jesus, the Son of God, to earth, to empower him and for his death and resurrection to provide salvation and forgiveness through the gospel, which we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the thing I want to emphasize is that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equally involved in this mission. This is expressed uh, or an aspect of it is expressed very clearly in John's Gospel. So John uh, chapter 3, very famously, uh, verse 16, very famous verse in the Bible reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, God so loving the world is a representation primarily of God the Father, 
God the Father gave his Son. Therefore, God the Father sent his Son. And so God the Father is involved in reaching you and I to seek to enable us to become his children through sending his Son and then through sending his Holy Spirit to equip his Son. And then God the Father and God the Son subsequently send the Holy Spirit to us as believers. And so we have this wonderful, mysterious reality that God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all equally involved in the great mission of salvation, which is focused, of course, on the actual deeds and life and sacrifice of Jesus. But we mustn't think of him as in any way separated in terms of will or desire or mission from God the Father or from the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead are working together. That's a wonderful reality. And by the way, that remains true, of course, today in the mission of the church. So as we are moving forward in the mission of the church, the Father is involved, the Son is involved, the Holy Spirit is involved equally. But the Spirit is the representative of the Trinity uh, on earth in terms of his presence within the church and within each believer in our life today, if we are believers. So my first reflection is that there's a wonderful description here of the mission of the Trinity. And an important point here is that the will of the Father and the Son are not separated. They, they work together. Even when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's not doing something that, is, that his Father doesn't want him to do. Uh, it's a necessary reality that they go through together. My next reflection is that this is the, the, the launch of Jesus's ministry. Things are really starting in earnest from this point, and we'll see how the story unfolds very quickly in subsequent episodes. And my next point is that what we see here is an incredible humility in Jesus. How remarkable it is that he is so willing to be baptised. This could so easily be misunderstood as an expression of his guilt and sinfulness and need to change because that's what everybody else was thinking when they were baptised. Jesus risked that misunderstanding. He went into the waters and it is a humbling thing to be baptised. It's, it's a humbling thing. And he went through that humbling action very willingly because he was identifying with humanity, fulfilling what his father wanted him to do and preparing the way for his future work. But it just tells us something about the remarkable character of Jesus and we'll see it all the way through his life. He was willing to pay the price. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to take the form of a servant. He was willing to do things that could be misunderstood and misrepresented. And we should honour him for his remarkable character as indicated by his decision to be baptised by John and not for John to be baptised by him as John had suggested as an alternative. Now this episode and the previous one have of course drawn our attention very much to the question of baptism. 
So I want to conclude this episode by just making a few more general comments about baptism as understood by Christians. What we see happening to the followers of John the Baptist and to Jesus in this particular episode is prefiguring the the reality of Christian baptism, which comes into play really only when Jesus has died, been raised again, the Holy Spirit has been given at Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, Christian baptism takes place formally for the first time. Peter's message on the day of Pentecost as described in Acts 2 leads to thousands of people responding, repenting, changing, believing in Jesus as as a Messiah. And instantaneously, they were baptised by being immersed in water, probably in ceremonial washing pools around the Jewish temple. So the symbolism of baptism is incredibly important from the very beginning. Some of us, however, will have questions about baptism. For example, in some countries and in some traditions, baptism is administered to infants or very small children, sometimes called christening. This is a tradition in many different churches for the families of church members, particularly. Is this a good thing? And is this found in the New Testament? Well, if we scrutinise the New Testament carefully, we'll find that infant baptisms of this type are not predicted and they don't take place in the New Testament period. Sometimes households were baptised in the early church as recorded in the Book of Acts, but infants are never mentioned and households probably mean uh, those adults and, and family members who are consciously responding in a group to the gospel. So baptism implies the conscious response to Christ as a believer. It's best described in Christian terms as believer's baptism rather than infant baptism. And so in many churches, particularly in these days, the doctrine of baptism is being strengthened as people realise that the church is only strong really when we have an initiation process that reflects the spiritual state of people coming. So when people truly repent and believe and decide to follow Jesus Christ, whatever age they are, when they're consciously able to do it and understand the implications and change their lives accordingly, then baptism is appropriate. And in many churches, believers' baptism is a part of the membership process of that church. Now, we're not here on this occasion, of course, to discuss this in full, but it seemed appropriate to make brief mention of these things because they arise actually out of some of the spiritual realities that are described in John's baptism and uh, the baptism of Jesus. We have here uh, people consciously responding to a message and uh, and in the case of those baptised by John, they are... Uh, as, as is described in one of the accounts, confessing their sins, coming and saying, there's this wrong with me and I need a change. Now, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides that inner change. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. We have a new birth 
and we start again. We'll, we'll find out more about the new birth in an episode coming up fairly soon when Jesus talks to Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3 in Jerusalem. So the origins of our doctrine of Christian baptism lie very much in John's baptism as described in this episode and particularly in the last episode which we uh, discussed from Luke chapter 3. So have those thoughts in mind. I wonder where you stand. You may be listening to this as an established Christian believer having been baptised as a believer or you may have some faith but uncertainty about baptism. You may think that infant baptism makes someone a believer. There's nothing in the New Testament that supports that. Or you may be an inquirer or a new Christian listening to this and you've not actually addressed the question of baptism. Well, let me encourage you to use this episode in the last one as a starting point for your own consideration. And I'd encourage you to read the book of Acts and see how baptism functioned in the early church. And I want to say in conclusion that to be baptised as a believer, having turned away from all the wrong things in your life and wholeheartedly committed yourself to Jesus Christ is one of the best things that anyone can do, even though in many places it can be a costly thing to do because it won't be popular with many people. But it is the reality of Christian discipleship and we see the origins of that here in these accounts and we'll see it developed uh, much later on. And at the end of the Gospels, Jesus commands his apostles to teach everything that he uh, taught them and to baptise believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I look forward to seeing you and uh, speaking to you again in further episodes. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.